This is the Monday, December 26th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, we're hooking reindeer up to our time machine and tricking it out like Santa's sleigh so we can head back to the tiny town of Wiltz, Luxembourg in December of 1944. The city had suffered five years of Nazi occupation with Hitler's savage counteroffensive through the Ardennes Forest, known as the Battle of the Bulge, yet to come. One of the founding ideas behind the History Author Show is we're all history authors. Some of us may write a book, others are just living our lives, and we might have a chapter or a sentence that shifts the timeline in ways we can never expect or even know at the time. This week's guest, Peter Lyon, tells exactly that sort of Christmas tale in The American Saint Nick, a true story. And it's not only a true story, every word of it, but it's our story, an American story that we can all be proud of in the U.S., and all our allies in Europe can have a hand in too. It all started when a comrade asked Corporal Richard W. Dick Brookins to dress up like the beloved 4th century bishop from Asia Minor, my ancestral home, as you may recall from our Smyrna September 1922 episode. Brookins agreed, spreading cheer and candy, hot cocoa, and whatever rations the GIs could spare to the war-weary local children, and in the process, resurrecting a holiday, St. Nicholas Day, that the Nazis had banned as they tried to wipe out Luxembourg's culture and annex them to the Reich. Immediately back in uniform after playing St. Nicholas for the children, Brookins continued with the war, and the Battle of the Bulge came and he quickly forgot about this one day in his life, not knowing that that one day for him would live on for decades as a Luxembourg legend. Brookins' story is the subject of a PBS documentary, also called The American Saint Nick, which you can catch if you check your local listings. And that's why we're uploading this episode a few days before Monday the 26th, to give you time to spread the word and set your DVRs. Peter Lyon is a seven-time Emmy Award-winning TV producer and director who majored in journalism with minors in both English and communications at Southern Connecticut State University. This is his first and only book. Why did he write it? Because it was a story he just felt he had to tell, that somebody had to tell, for history's sake. So he picked up his pen, and now we can all enjoy a history story, a Christmas story, like no other. You can unwrap more information, video, and pictures about the American Saint Nick by visiting americansaintnick.com or following Peter at American Saint Nick on Twitter. In both cases, use the abbreviation ST in the name. Okay, now that we're up on the rooftop, click, 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 let's go down through the chimney with Peter Lyon and meet the American Saint Nick. I'm joined on the line by Peter Lyon, author of The American Saint Nick, A True Story. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show and in the spirit of the season and Luxembourg, Shea Firedash. <laughs> I learned something new. <laughs> That's Merry Christmas? Yes, it is. Yeah, I looked it up and uh, found somebody online nice enough to say it over and over for me. And I practiced Shea Firedash, which is going to be my new greeting for people. Though. <laughs> Very nice. Well done. <laughs> well done. Peter, start by setting the stage for us. This is a place 
not many people in America think about or the rest of the world. It's only a 999 square mile country. So not a lot of people live there. Not a lot of people are speaking the language. You don't speak it. I don't speak it. It's, I don't think, an elective in many high schools in the United States or Europe. (laughs) So describe for us the state of these townspeople that the Americans GIs liberate. And as you have visited the town of Viltz, Share with us where it is and just give us the general snapshot, the postcard view of visiting this place. Yeah, the Wilts is a very small town. It's nestled in the foothills of the Ardennes Forest. It's a beautiful vacation retreat. The people are phenomenal. They're, everybody's really nice and people like to go there to hike and bike and, uh, you know, in the summer months and all that. You know, it's beautiful countryside. It's just a beautiful town. And they had this Wilts Castle, which sort of looks like a French chateau, but it's really a castle and it's, you know, cobblestone streets. It's just, it's just absolutely picture book perfect. And when the GIs were there during the war, the reason they had gone to Wiltz was that the country had been liberated in September of 1944, and these guys of the 28th Infantry Division had been pulled out of the Battle of the Hurricane Forest two months later in November. And the Hurricane Forest, just to you know, put some perspective on this, was just a meat grinder of a battle that division after division was committed to. In fact, the 28th, they went in to relieve the 9th division. The 28th, when they were in there, suffered two-thirds casualties. And if you think about a division, we're talking like 9,000 guys. So 6,000 guys were casualties of this one battle alone. So to say that they were devastated by this is an understatement. So they get pulled out of this battle and they get sent to the rear for some you know, rest and recuperation, restocking, resupplies, and, to, and obviously to get replacements. And they ended up in Viltz because at the time, Viltz was the headquarters for the 28th Infantry Division. So they're there, and this small little group of guys, which is from the headquarters division, the Signal Company Message Center, they're in this town. And it's, and it's, it's beautiful. It's picturesque. It, like most of the towns in Luxembourg, were intact, meaning the Germans chose not to defend the country. They simply abandoned it and retreated into Germany. So everything was whole. Everything was as pretty and as pristine as when they liberated two months earlier. And while they're there, they come to find out that – it's funny. You mentioned their language. Their language was actually forbidden for them to speak during Nazi occupation. And so they find out all these horrible things that had gone on under the Nazi rule. And one of those things was they were not allowed to celebrate, of all things, St. Nicholas Day. And the reason for that was it was not a sanctioned German holiday. The Germans uh, set about this sort of program of re-educating and re-Germanizing the population. They considered Luxembourg part of Germany, and they were just annexing versus occupying the country. So the GIs that were there came to find out that although St. Nicholas Day was rapidly approaching, it was on December 6th, 1944, that although they could finally celebrate the holiday, they had nothing with which to celebrate. The ravages of war and everything just left them with nothing. So one of the GIs, his name is Harry Stutz, and he's uh, one of the guys from the Signal Company Message Center. He gets it in his head that, well, you know, maybe there's something that we can do for these guys. Maybe there's something we can do for the town. And it's important to remember that the celebration of St. Nicholas Day in Viltz and in pretty much all of Luxembourg is a town-wide celebration where Christmas was more of a a family-type celebration. So this is something that the whole town was, you know, would turn out for and they would all celebrate. And it was really meant for the children of the town. But again, they had nothing with which to celebrate. So it was looking like a bleak holiday was on the horizon until this guy, Harry Stutz, steps forward. Now, Harry, and this is one of the, the ironies of the story, is a Jewish soldier. He knows nothing about Catholic traditions or holidays or anything like that. So Harry has to go to the local priest to find out what it is he has to do to make St. Nicholas Day happen. And that's sort of how the story unfolds. It's something that he is a Jewish soldier here, and he's looking at these children, looking at the people and connecting with them. And it would be easy to be overwhelmed by all that he would know by this point and hear was going on. 
And yet he just decides to try to help them. You have many things here in the American St. Nick where you talk about him going to the priest and never mind that he's Jewish and doesn't know the traditions, but he doesn't speak the language. So he's trying to kind of speak to him and explain, I want to throw a party and they don't quite get it. It's not even so much they don't understand him or maybe it's equal part not understanding him and not getting it. Like we're in the middle of a war and you're fighting (laughs) and you want to throw a party for the children and they just think that it's so wonderful and they all kind of get behind it. It's one of these things that really builds. It's an amazing story. And one reason why you insisted, in fact, on the subtitle, A True Story, is because of those little parts of it in the American St. Nick, like it's starting with a Jewish soldier's idea that seem stranger than fiction. They seem unbelievable. So that's why you, you really wanted to have that so people would know this is not fictionalized at all. Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, when you write a book and you deal with publishers, publishers always want to have a tagline to the title, you know, American St. Nick, the story of bravery and honor, and they go on and on. Mm -hmm. And if you go to any bookstore, you'll see that. But when I was talking to the publisher, we were going back and forth, I said, we need to say it's a true story. That's what it should be. And you're absolutely right. The reason was there are so many what I like to call sidebars or feeder stories that go into the main focus of the book. That as I was even reading it during the whole editing process, I thought, I thought you know what? No one's going to believe some of this stuff because it sounds, you know, it sounds Hollywoodized. You, you know, <laughs> if you want to put it in those terms, it sounds fiction. It sounds like it's been made up, but it hasn't been. So the whole point of saying a true story was to remind anyone who's reading it, and I really do encourage people to read it, not just because I wrote it, but because it's such a wonderful story. That when they're reading it, that what they are reading is true. It really happened, just like it is in the book. The fact that Harry was. Again, this Jewish soldier running around this predominantly Catholic country trying to organize a Christmas party for the guys, but really a St. Nicholas party for the kids. It's just that in itself was just one of the, those amazing sidebar stories that, that, you know, again, go into making this overall story. Well, you say it's like Hollywood, and I'll say one step more from that. What it makes me think is it's actually like bad Hollywood. If this was fiction, you would say, right. oh, come on, you know, right? This things can't just happen. Why are you picking a Jewish soldier to figure why would he, why would it even occur to that guy? That doesn't make sense. Or even this story that you opened, the American St. Nick in 1977. This is 30 years after the war. All these records right. have been burned. They don't know where this man who played the American St. Nick is. And this Sergeant Frank McClellan, who's been a POW, a member of the Keystone Division's 112th Infantry, with Stutz and Brookins, who ends up playing the role of the American St. Nick, Frank McClellan just happens to be passing through Luxembourg and ask the right question, talk to the right people. They show him the museum and they say, help us find him, right? So talk about why you open with him, because that's right off the bat something unbelievable that he manages to make this connection to soldiers that even though he served with them in the Keystone Division, he didn't know anything about them. Right. You know, you're absolutely right. In fact, he was Frank McClellan, as you mentioned, he's a sergeant, but he was with the military police. He was an MP. And as such... His unit was attached to the 28th Infantry, and of course they served in the in the division, but they were not necessarily 28th Infantry you know, soldiers proper. So yeah, they were in town at the same time, but they never knew each other. They never met. So you're right. When he goes back in 1977 to basically retrace his warriors, as you mentioned, he had been captured during the Battle of the Bulge. In fact, he was captured just outside of the town of Viltz. He was one of the last defenders of the town. They volunteered to stay behind and and cover the withdrawal during the bulge. And just as they were leaving town, the little convoy they were in, they were ambushed. And he ended up escaping into the woods, but only for a day before he was captured. And he spent the rest of the war as a POW. So here he was years, years later, retracing his war years. And part of that was because he was always bothered by the fact that during that escape into the woods, he lost two of his fellow soldiers. Uh, When they were ambushed, basically, they stumbled across this patrol of Germans. And he always wondered, was there anything that he, as the leader, as the sergeant who was leading this band of guys, was there anything he could have done differently? So he was haunted by this and wanted to go back and wanted to find out what could he have done. And his answer when he got there was that there was nothing he could have done. It was just dumb luck that they ended up walking right into this group of patrolling Germans. So when he's going back and he's retracing his steps, it naturally goes to Viltz. And as you say, he 
meets up with some of the locals there who are always, always wanting to meet people from the war, especially the 28th Infantry Division. And they say, hey, you know, we've got this museum in the Vils Castle. Would you come and see it? And he says, yeah, sure. That'd be great. So they take him to the castle. And, and as you say, they're going around and they point to this picture on the wall from the war. There's a guy that looks like Santa Claus in this picture. And they point to him and they say, well, do you know this guy? And of course, he's, he's like, no, I mean, it looks like a priest. They're like, no, 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 no. He's a GI. He's dressed as, he's dressed as St. Nicholas. And he says, well, no, I don't, I don't really know the guy. And they say, well, you must help us find him. And, and of course, at this point, he's thinking, are, are they crazy? I mean, <laughs> how am I supposed to find one guy who may or may not have survived the war in a division of 9,000 guys? How am I supposed to try to do this? And, you know, any questions then, like, like did, didn't you try the embassy? Did you try the army? And they did. They had tried all that, and they were unsuccessful. Anyway, the guys in Wilts, this one particular guy, his name is Gene Schweig. He had been a, a young boy during the war, 16 years old. And he was making it his mission to try to track these guys down. And he was very persuasive and said to Frank, you got to help us track these guys down. So Frank, I guess, promised to do it just to, if nothing else, to get this one guy to just back off. And when he finishes the trip and he gets home, sure enough, he ends up tracking down this guy named Richard Brookins, alive and well, living in Rochester, New York, just happened to be living in the exact same hometown where he grew up prior to the war. And he provides that information to the people back in Viltz. And that's how the story springs from there. They finally get in touch with him and they say, would you come back and do this again? And Richard is like, do what? <laughs> yeah. Because for 30 years, you know, let's back up a second. Right after the Battle of the Bulge, these guys were pulled out of this town of Bills and they never went back again. Obviously, the war went on and their assignments took them elsewhere. So this little party that they threw for these kids was just a couple of hours in one day, December 5th, 1944. And then that was it. They'd forgotten about it. And they moved on with their lives. And everybody in Viltz, however, they vowed that they would never forget the kindness and generosity of those few American soldiers that won St. Nicholas Day. And so they made it their mission to basically try to find these guys. During that time, however, they decided in order to honor them, they would incorporate a new tradition into their holiday celebration. And that would be somebody from the town would be chosen. And this was a great honor, by the way to be dressed up as not just St. Nicholas, but as the American St. Nicholas. And they would recreate the procession through town just like they did during the war. And they would end up at the Viltz Castle just like they did during the war. And they would hand out treats and snacks and candies to the kids just like they did during the war at a party in the castle just like they did during the war. And they did this and recreated this faithfully for 30 years and it was on the 30th anniversary of rebuilding of their town, they wanted to do something special. And that's when they tried to find those original guys. And Sergeant Frank McClelland, you said that he manages to go back and find Richard Brookins, the American St. Nick. That's another one of these incredible serendipity moments that, as I said, if you put that in a screenplay, they would say, come on, the first guy he calls not only knows and remembers Richard Brookins, but he says, oh, he works at the phone company, too. And because he's at the phone company, I'll be able to easily find him. And after they've been looking for him for so long, it's just an amazing coincidence, it seems like. And if it was fiction, you wouldn't believe it. But in a real life story, it just all fits together so beautifully. And you were part of that story too. I want you to walk our listeners through how you first learned of this. It was your friend's father who played the American St. Nick. And he learns he played this big role in tiny Luxembourg as Ducletian, which is Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm, I'm really getting my Luxembourgese out there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so explain your moment where your phone kind of rings metaphorically and you learn about this story and say, I've just got to write this down. Well, that you're right. It was actually kind of a, a serendipitous moment as well. A very good buddy of mine, his name is Terry Brookins. He was telling me that he was going to be taking his family on a, on a holiday, on a vacation. This was many years ago. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm going to take them to Luxembourg at the end of November. Now, at the time, I didn't really know very much about Luxembourg. But I knew that at the end of November, it was going to be very cold, probably raining, probably snowing. And I just said, you know, Terry, why are you going to Luxembourg? Why don't you go to Disney World or something like that? And he said, no, 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 I got to go over there for this thing my dad did during the war. And I was like, oh, well, you know, and, I, and again, I'd always had this, you know, an amazing fascination with all things World War II. I had, you know, several uncles that fought in the war. So I was always, always, you know, captivated by these stories. I said, oh, well, well, what did he do? And so Terry tells me this five minute version of the book story of what the story is. And when he was done, I was just 
gobsmacked, you know, just jaw agape. I just thought, oh, my God, Terry, what, a, what an amazing story. And he said, no, 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 all those guys have stories like that. I was like, no, <laughs> not like this one. This is pretty remarkable. Give me your dad's phone number. I, I want to write this story. This, this is an amazing story. And I got to tell you, that was before I started finding out all the other just unbelievable, and I say unbelievable, and they are believable, elements that go to make up the story. You know, I, it's so funny you mentioned the, you know, the Hollywood script type thing. I always picture some Hollywood executive saying to a scriptwriter or a director saying to a scriptwriter, let's write the script up and then sending it back because no one's going to believe the guy was Jewish. No one's going to believe he worked in the phone company. Come on. You know, that's, that, that's too far-fetched. You got to make it more realistic. And that's, that's one of just the ironies of the story is that there are so many of these elements that go into making this and it's all true. It's one of those things again and again, where if it was a screenplay or a novel, you're reading it and you're saying that's just happening because it needs to happen for the plot to advance the MacGuffin. And it's just sort of like the magic right. character shows up and, oh, he happens to need a, a screwdriver and a plumber comes by or whatever. <laughs> like, you wouldn't believe that that was the okay. case. It seems like lazy writing, but when you're writing real history, it's wonderful. You must have had so many aha moments right from the minute your friend just chooses to share this with you. He could have just said, I'm going to Europe and right. not even bother getting into Luxembourg, which as you said, it doesn't sound particularly sexy. And for Richard Brookins, putting on that suit is also a moment where he plays his role in history without ever knowing it. Talk about how Corporal Harry Stutz chooses him. He's his roommate. Right. He wants him to play St. Nick for the kids. Talk about why he chooses him and how he kind of makes this transformation from, oh, gee, can't you get someone else? No, to <laughs> right. I'm going to do this till the very end. And he has the hat on from the bishop, I guess it is, or the priest. And he says, my head is killing me, but I'm not taking it off because I don't want any of these children to be taken out of the moment and see I'm just a guy and not St. Nick. So walk us through that. How does he go from this reluctant participant to this man who now in his 90s is fully embracing this role of legend. Well, yeah, exactly. Harry had put together what he liked to call the Christmas Committee. And what he did is he just assembled a bunch of the guys from the message center. Again, Jewish. And, yeah. And he just, <laughs> you know, it's, you know we got to keep, keep remembering that. He's a Jewish soldier trying, trying to do this. He assembles these guys and assigns them all a task. Like one guy was to get with the company cooks, to try to get them to make donuts and cookies and stuff. And another guy uh, went around and collected all the chocolate bars and everybody's rations to bring to the nuns to make hot cookies. Coco. A couple other guys were assigned to get the invitations for this. They had them printed up and, and they were going to distribute them throughout the town. So he had these, all these guys doing this. And in talking to the priest of the town, he comes to realize the one thing I really need is I need to have St. Nicholas. All this sounds really great, but there's no St. Nicholas. And don't forget, they had not been able to celebrate this. But now after five years, they're finally able to celebrate the people in Wilts. So now it's more important than anything that these children, some of whom have never seen St. Nicholas because they grew up during the war, that was more important than anything else that they have somebody to be St. Nicholas and make an appearance. So that's when he says, well, I got the perfect guy, my roommate, Richard. I'll have him do it. So he goes up to Richard, just like you said, and he, and he tells him about the party. And, of course, Richard knew this was going on. And he says, you know, I was wondering, can you help us out? And Richard says, yeah, sure, whatever you need. He goes, well, I need you to play St. Nicholas. And Richard says, no, get, <laughs> you know, get somebody else to do it. And the reason he, he said that was because you know, after hearing Harry go around and telling him what it was going to be about and how important this was to everybody – he didn't want it to be something that he would fail at or that, that he would somehow screw up or the kids wouldn't believe it or whatever. So he was just more afraid of, of somehow ruining the whole thing for the children. But Harry was very, very persuasive with Richard and worked on it and worked on it. And finally, Richard acquiesces and says, okay, sure, I'll do it. I'll play sick. Nick goes, what do I have to do? And then Harry says, well, you got to get in the Jeep that's outside and you got to go to the castle because the nuns have a costume for you. And <laughs> he was like – what do you mean a costume? <laughs> so he gets so right because you got to you got to play the part. So he gets to the castle, and sure enough, the costume was the priest's mass robes that were on loan to him. And he carried a shepherd's staff; they called it a crozier. And they made him a bishop's mitre hat, one of those pointy hats, and a beard made out of rope. This thick, gnarly, scraggly piece of rope that the nuns had sort of woven into this beard. And that was the costume. And he didn't really know once, you know, he had the costume. He said, but I don't you know what else do I do? And Harry said, yeah, you just, you know, just chuck him under the chin, pat him on the head. That's, you know, that's fine. You'll be, you know, be fine. But Richard also, 
in high school had taken German one year. So he knew enough German that he could ask for the, the child's name or just make small talk. And, you know, he'd often like, you know, ask him something and, and the, the children would respond, but he had no idea what they were saying. And it didn't really matter because they were all having a great time. Once he got there, Richard, once he got into the, into the role, it sort of took him over. And, you know, he, as he says, I kind of became a ham and I hammed it up and just, you know, had a great time. The kids were having a good time. He was having a good time. And at that point, he didn't want it to end. That goes to show you the power of the kindness that this event generated. A Christmas ham, for sure. And one that was so. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and there are many pictures in your book. And in addition to the pictures of the American St. Nick in the American St. Nick, your career as a director and a producer, earning those Emmys along the way, I felt so much when I was able to see video of it, how excited I was. And I wondered how you felt when you discovered that existed, the video of this event, which is another one of these moments. People are going to get either very excited or very tired of hearing about it, how amazing these moments are <laughs> that these videographers, I mean, think about the time, everybody. This is not where you were shooting video with your iPhone. You need to have some right. serious equipment you're carrying around with you here in the middle of a war. So talk about that. How did you find out this existed? And what did that add here to this documentary also? Also called the American Saint Nick, that listeners can see during the holidays on PBS. You're exactly right. That's a, one of those uh, again amazing feeder stories that goes into this. How I came across this video, there was somebody in Vils. This was years ago that I was there, and someone showed me this video, and I thought, "Oh wow, where, you know, where did you get that from?" Now we're going to all put a, a nickel in the Wayback Machine. It was on VHS. <laughs> if anyone remembers VHS, and so, you know, and you know what kind of quality it was. And so they said, oh, this is from the Army. And that got me thinking, well, if it's from the Army. It's got to be in the National Archives somewhere. So that was where I began my search into the National Archives. And I have to tell you, it was – I had just about exhausted my search because – and we have to go back to the, to the original event. There were two combat cameramen who were out on assignment earlier in that day, December 5th. And they, you know, they had to shoot – Ninth Infantry Troop movements in Germany and a, a bombing run over the Roar River Valley. And then they were on their way back to, as we mentioned, headquarters in Wiltz. And Wiltz, again, very small town. You can come in from the south. The, the road kind of goes up and loops around the castle and then kind of loops back out and goes out to the north. And they were coming into town and they were pretty much done with their assignments. And as they came into the center of town, they see something rather unusual. It's something that you, you don't usually see in war-torn Europe every day, and that is a jeep coming out of the castle portal with what looks like Santa Claus hanging out of the back. And so <laughs> curiosity just gets the better of them, and they say, well, what, what's this all about? Let's go check this out. And they come to find out that this party's going on. So they said, well, gee, we have some extra film on the reel. Let's, let's go roll on it. So they set up at the castle, and they just did it. They just rolled on it. There's nothing they were assigned to do, nothing that they you know, were ordered to do. They just did it because they thought, well, why not? Let's just record this. And they did. Unfortunately, when they cataloged it, they cataloged you know, what their real assignments were first and then cataloged it as Santa Claus Party and Wills. That was it. So to find that was just – again, it was such an exhaustive search, but I finally did come across it. And to be honest with you, it's one of those things that as a writer, again, let's go back to a true story. When I'm writing about that passage of the actual party that's taking place that day, December 5th, this was one of the easiest parts of the book to write because all I was doing is watching the film and just describing what I was seeing in the film over and over again. I, I kept watching it, saying, oh, yeah, handing out donuts. Yep, they're handing out donuts. He's walking around. He's walking around. He's patting him on the head. He's patting him on the head. I mean, it was, you know, I had the video or the film right there in front of me. So again, it's not, it's not author embellishment. It's not fictionalized account. It's not my interpretation. What you're reading is ex an exact, just my reporting of what happened that day based on what I'm seeing in the film. And the film, you mentioned the documentary film. There's a documentary film that's based on the book, American St. Nick. It was done uh, by the World War II Foundation. That also is an Emmy-winning film. As you say, it does air nationally on PBS stations throughout the month of December because it's such a great holiday film. That original film, and this, this film runs about six minutes, the original uh, black and white film from 1944, is in that documentary. And it's fascinating because what they did is that they did a high-definition transfer of that film. So what you see in the documentary film, The American St. Nick, is actually the cleanest, most purest copy of that film that exists today. And it's, and it's spectacular. 
our guest on behalf of Der Klischen and this wonderful story that we're telling today <laughs> is Peter Lyon. He's author of The American Saint Nick, A True Story. Visit Peter online at AmericanStNick.com or follow him on Twitter at AmericanStNick. Be sure to use the abbreviation ST in both of those titles. You can see those videos, actually, we were just talking about there. See a little trailer of the film and really take yourself into that moment. Video is so powerful and you see it and you you just can't believe it to be in the back of that Jeep and to be wearing all that, those two little angels with him. And you're immediately attached to all those children and hoping they all make it through the war. At AmericanStNick.com, you can also find a ton of praise for the book. These include from Tom Brokaw, Meredith Vieira, and Helen Patton. She's the granddaughter of the legendary general and CEO of the Patton Alliance. Major General John Gronsky, commanding general of Brookings Unit today, calls the American St. Nick, quote, an uplifting story about man's humanity to man in the midst of a bitter war, and how the goodness of a 28th Infantry Division soldier has continued over seven decades. And he says it speaks to our Army values and warrior mindset, unquote. Peter, I want to dwell on that idea of Army values. Having written the American St. Nick, what do you hope people with a negative view of American troops who've maybe seen a lot of those Hollywood movies that are negative depictions or the active duty personnel who deal with those things sometimes and those feelings? I know some soldiers come back from war zones today from Iraq or Afghanistan, and they say many people are reluctant to hire them because they're afraid that they're going to go crazy. They've seen so many of these movies and read these books, and people are a little bit off put by them. So what do you hope that those people, the soldiers, and also people maybe who don't know that there are these positive contributions will get from reading The American St. Nick? Well, you know, Dean, one of the things that I think becomes clear in this book, in, in the film, is that soldiers they are ambassadors of our country. Each one of them is in some way an ambassador. And I think this particular story and, and this particular group of guys, I think, demonstrate the best of the American troops, the best of the American soldiers. What they did for these kids, they didn't do it because they were told to do it or ordered to do it. They just did it because it was just something nice that they wanted to do for people who didn't have a whole lot. And they just wanted to bring a little bit of joy and kindness back to this town. And that's it. And they asked for nothing in return. They just wanted to do something just for these children. So I think that just speaks to the Again, it's you know the kindness and the ambassadorship that we see in soldiers today and realize that, yes, they do represent the best in us and the best of us. And I think this is one of those prime examples of that. On the flip side of that, casting the American military as a problem in the world, others in the U.S. dismiss the Europeans. They feel that they're ungrateful for the sacrifices in the Second World War. And that's also something that I think we may pick up from films or people traveling or just a sense of, in general, sometimes people don't know a lot of history and they just assume that things sort of started and stopped with the Second World War. So I wanted to ask you, having been there, having researched this so much, this tiny corner of the world, what do they feel towards these men who liberated them? They have never forgotten the sacrifices that were made on their behalf, the blood that was that was spilled, the lives that were lost on their behalf. You know, if you ever get a chance to go there, go to the American Military Cemetery in Ham, which, by the way, is where General Patton is buried. He's in that cemetery because he wanted to be buried with his men. And you see the rows and rows of, of crosses. And it's just it's a very humbling place to be. And it also, again, reminds you of what was done to secure freedom, certainly there during that time. And I'll tell you this. You walk down the streets of Wilts or just about any street in Luxembourg, you'll see the American flag and the flag of Luxembourg flying side by side. And that's just, just to show, like, again, they've never forgotten sacrifices that were made in their honor. And there are plaques and there are memorials all throughout the country. You drive down the road, and there are road signs certainly pointing to, to the next town, to the next series of towns. But there are also road signs pointing to battlefields uh, that, that, were, that they memorialize and, and, and different memorials to the, the men that were fighting there. One of the things that people don't realize is that when they were defending the town, when the 20th Infantry Division was defending the town, the 28th Infantry Division band, the band, put down their musical instruments and picked up weapons. And were, were def you know, they were trying to defend the town as long as they could. So there's actually a memorial to the Infantry Division band in the town of Ville. So it's that kind of thing you see everywhere throughout Belgium and Luxembourg and, and France. And it's, you know, for those people who forget, 
Again, the war was not fought on our soil, so we sometimes don't appreciate the sacrifices that were made to secure the freedoms that they see over there in Europe now. That reminds me of something I discussed with Andrew Nagorski, author of The Nazi Hunters, and he said his wife is from Poland. You know, for us, it's over there. For them, over there is right across the street. And so you remember it in a much different way. We tend to look at it as something we've seen through film. Of course, we have all over plaques and memorials to the dead, but we don't have, this is a battlefield. We don't know that our house was used by the German Strombenfuhrer of the town or something. And we don't know we weren't allowed to speak our language here like Luxembourg. And we just didn't have that fight that was right on top of us. So for them to put down their weapons here and pick up that staff and that beard and that hat really spoke to uniting our two people. I mean, Luxembourg becomes a founding member of NATO. So here's a connection right there to the U.S., them not forgetting. You have a quote in your book by Father Victor Wolf from 1977. He says, if Luxembourg would stand for another thousand years, we will always be grateful to the American soldiers and their most brave and valiant nation who gave their blood so that we may live in a free Europe, unquote. And that also reminds me of a friend of mine who went to the recent D-Day anniversary, and he said they meet people from all over that are reenacting as American GIs, and this one fellow that he met was Danish, and he said, I come here every year to honor them because they didn't have to come all the way across the ocean to do this thing, to liberate us so that we could live in liberty. They could have just stayed there and not done it, and I think that in some ways, because you have a story like the American St. Nick and you have a tiny little country that doesn't have a lot of its own culture. A lot of it is influenced here by France and Germany, and they're kind of the, the little kid between the two big kids there for most of their history. They make these folk legends even bigger, and they invite him back every year to play the American St. Nick. It's such a beautiful little thing where everything falls together. And that he accepts it, and he's gone back eight times since 1977. When you talk to him, Richard Brookins, how has that changed over the years? I mean, he gets off that plane the first time, and it must just have been incredible, and now he must have settled into it. Well, as you say, when he got off that plane in 77 and you know realized then what that little act during the war meant, I think that's the time when it really hit him, like what, you know, what we did here during that party really meant so much to these people. And they had no idea, you know, and where you go there now. And as you say, Richard's been back eight times. He's 94 years old right now. So, you know, he doesn't really go back all that often anymore just because he just physically can't. But they still remember him each and every year. In fact, for the parade, they'll come uh, in the parade. St. Nicholas or the Cletian, as you were saying, is in a sleigh and he'll, a sled. He'll come down the street. And instead of two angels, there's now six of them. And the sled <laughs> is very big and it goes through town. But the sled stops right at the castle portal. And then St. Nicholas gets off the sled and he gets into an army jeep, a vintage World War II army jeep. And they drive through the portal just like they did during the war to recreate that moment that we see in the film. And there's even a photo of it in the book that uh, was still taken from that film of the Jeep going through that castle portal. And they recreate that each and every year just to show how much it meant to them. You know, one of the other interesting things you talked about, the bonds of the two countries of the U.S. and Luxembourg, those are so solid that the book has been translated into their native language so that they can all throughout Luxembourg know this story. That translation was sponsored by the U.S. Embassy in Luxembourg. Hmm. So those ties are still there and very strong. It sells very well, too, I understand, again, from your website. You know, both the English version of the book, the documentary, and the Luxembourg version of the book were all released last year at the same time. And within three weeks of its release in Luxembourg in their native language, it was shot up to, I think, number five on their nonfiction bestseller list. So, yeah, there's a great interest in the story. They love it. They can't get enough of it. And uh, it's just one of those things that now that they know the story, it continues to grow and continues to grow. The last time I was there, which is in 2015, where the original party had 30 kids you know, surrounding St. Nicholas or Mr. Brookins, this time there were 3,000 kids waiting wow. for them. So it's, it's continued to grow and to grow through the years, as you would expect. We mentioned that the war is still going on now, so it's not all hot chocolate, unfortunately, from this point on. The Battle of the Bulge is Hitler's final gasp. He tries to 
push west there and drive the Allies back into the sea out of France. When Wiltz finds itself at the top of the Wehrmacht counteroffensive this time in the Ardennes, it's not just that they want to annex them and sort of keep them intact. They have a terrible fate befall them. These guys are fighting for their lives. Many of them lose their lives. So talk about what does happen to the town afterwards and how they rebuild, because I think it just shows so much more how Brooklyn's coming in here and playing this role and trying to give them a little joy is all the more precious to them when they face war on both sides of that. Yeah, during the bulge, I tell you, it was that's when the town of Vils and pretty much you know, all of Luxembourg was devastated and finally hit by the horrors of war. Again, when they were liberated in September of 44, the Germans just abandoned Luxembourg. And again, they retreated into Germany. And as we know now, they were retreating into Germany to build up the counteroffensive. But when they attacked through the Ardennes, it was so swift and so fast that they just poured through the U.S. lines. And again, that's how the infamous bulge in the lines took place. And what was necessary for the Allies was to bomb these the towns and these cities in order to now route the Germans out of there finally once and for all. During that bombing, that Allied bombing, was when most of Wiltz was destroyed. I think like 85% of the town was destroyed by, by bombing. The boys' school that was in the center of town was completely destroyed. The hospital that was uh, nearby was destroyed. I mean, 85% of the town was, was just like laid to ruin. Sadly, some of the children that had been at this party were killed. And that kind of is one of those sobering moments when you think about it. It's like that was their last best memory of their lives was that Santa Claus or that St. Nicholas party. And even so, even though they had all this destruction and the death that surrounded them, that's when they vowed that they, the people in Vilts, would never forget those soldiers. And to this day, they, they haven't. And I think part of the credit has to go to them as well. I mean, yes, what these soldiers did was just a wonderful act of kindness. But let's also remember the people in Vilts and in Luxembourg who made it their mission to remember that one day and that act and those soldiers and, and to continue the tradition and to continue to remember so that no one would ever forget what had happened in their in their village, in their towns, and in their country during the war. And the love that they express is just so amazing from the beginning of your book there with Sergeant McClelland all the way through here to the end. You have a line, somebody speaks that you quote in the book that says they think Americans are the best thing since hair on a dog, which I'm going to start <laughs> saying all the time, along with my words from Luxembourg. But to show sort of the bookend of that, in his Rochester, New York home on July 7th, 2016, Luxembourg presents Brookins, now 94, as you said, 93 at the time, with the Military Medal. What's the significance of that honor, and how does this humble corporal, that's something that comes out very much about him throughout the American St. Nick, is how he's a humble guy, he's just kind of a soldier. How does he feel about getting this medal and things like them erecting a statue to him and having somebody play his role every year? You're right. He's one of the most humble guys you'll ever meet. He's still to this day said I was just a big kid having fun. And again, remember, 30 years went by. They had no knowledge that any of this was going on in their honor until they, you know, he gets this uh, this letter from you know this guy Gene Schweig saying, you know, can you please come back and do this again? And that's when you know now it's become, as he says, the role of his life. But who knew? The military medal that you mentioned, this was given to Richard on behalf of the royal family there in Luxembourg because of his actions during that party, what he did to bring kindness and to bring you know humanity back to these children that one St. Nicholas Day. Just to put it in perspective, that military medal is very rarely awarded. Past recipients have included Winston Churchill, Charles de Gaulle. General Eisenhower and future President Eisenhower, Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery. So truly, <laughs> Mr. Brookins is in rarefied air with this medal. It's just something that he, don't get me wrong, loves the attention and realizes that it's a big thing for the people in Vilsen, the people in Luxembourg. But if I think if you asked him, he'd, be, he'd still kind of be wondering, like, well, you know, what did I do to get this break? You know, he just, you know, it's just, he's just a regular guy. It reminds me of the Star Trek episode, A Piece of the Action. Yes. The ship comes and they just leave this book on Chicago mobs of the 20s behind her. <laughs> right. And they come back then 100 years later, the Enterprise, and they've completely based their entire culture on it. And their whole planet is now gangs from the 20s, right? And they say, <laughs> right. well, exactly. they were so impressed by that and they're honoring it and they're still building it up. 
that's the thing here with this. He This is literally an afternoon that he just decides he'll do this, and he survives the war, thankfully. So, I mean, he could have been lost. They don't know what happened, and yet they continue to honor him. And one thing I think that's very beautiful that Richard Brookings does is he says he's doing it for all the guys that didn't make it home, that didn't have this wonderful story. And the people of Luxembourg, the people of Vilt specifically, they also are trying to honor them, too, through this one soldier. Right, and you know what? He... You know, again, he probably won't go back again just because of his health. But every time he did go back, he made it a point to go to that cemetery in Ham and basically visit those friends of his who are still there. Until they passed, Frank McClellan went back many times, as did Harry Stutz. But again, you know, obviously age caught up to them at some point and they just couldn't make it anymore. But uh, Richard, again, you know, God bless him. He's still alive and still with us and, uh, and a truly a national treasure. Peter, we could talk about this all day. We're having a lot of fun, but it's a busy time of year, so I'll only ask you one final question in case you're going to be one of Dercletian's angels this year. And <laughs> I'm picturing you in the wings there now. That I don't know if that's a good look, but <laughs> not for not for me, it's not. <laughs> when people read the American Saint Nick, what do you hope they'll take away from Richard Brookins' example as they live their own lives? That's a great question, and I think one of the <laughs> The big takeaways from this story is that I think we can all look at it and say, you know, even the smallest act of kindness, we sometimes don't understand how it impacts people and how much it means to somebody. And it could be the smallest thing. It could be, you know, you give a dollar to some homeless guy or whatever. You just don't realize sometimes what just a small act of kindness and generosity can mean to somebody. I mean, that is never more obvious than in this story where, you know, again, they didn't do this because they were ordered to. They did it because they just wanted to do something nice for these kids. And now here we are, you know, 70 plus years later, still celebrating that one day. You know, it was just a little two hour party. And yet we're still honoring it and celebrating it 70 plus years later. So to me, the big takeaway is we just don't know sometimes what our actions and actions of kindness can mean to people. It really is beautiful. You could be writing history and not even know it. In this case, he wasn't trying to do anything but a nice thing for some kids, and he had to be dragged into that a little or at least pushed into it. So I think it's just so beautiful of an idea that they did find him. You're reading your book, and even though you know he does get found, you're really rooting for it because you want him to know, and they care so much. They seem like lovely people there in Luxembourg. They really are. I tell you, they're like you know, some of my best friends there because every time I go back, it's like seeing old friends that you haven't seen in years. And, and it's just they always make you feel welcome. And it's just a beautiful little town. In fact, there's one little anecdote that I'll pass along is that the family of a soldier went back and they had gone to Vils because they knew that this museum existed to the 20th Infantry Division and the people who defended Wilts during the Battle of the Bulge. So they knew this museum was there and they, here they go. They make a special side trip on their vacation to go to this town and they get there and the museum is closed. They're brokenhearted because you know they knew their father was part of this division. Well, they're at a, a restaurant and they're talking about it and one of the people overhears the conversation and says, oh, did you want to see the museum? Okay. And they pick up the phone and basically call the guy who runs the museum who comes up, you know, he's dangling from a, from a keychain <laughs> to open the museum just to give them a private tour just because their father had been in the war and in the 20th Infantry Division. They just pour their hearts out to you. They're very, very kind and wonderful people, and I just can't say enough about them. Well, it really is a beautiful book, a beautiful story with many smaller stories that are attached to it. I'm sure it's just going to keep growing now. The American St. Nick is also a true story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. It's so much cheer here. We joked a little bit about it, too. It's because it's uplifting, and that's what you want this time of year. Also, you can reflect. Best of luck with the book. We'll look forward to catching the documentary, The American St. Nick, on PBS. You can probably find it, I'm sure, online. Stream it there from PBS. And Peter Lyons, since it's the last time I'll probably get a chance to say it, I will say Shea Fire Dish. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> Again, the book is The American Saint Nick, a true story. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate through the URL on our homepage for all your online purchases. Amazon.com gives a small percentage of everything you spend, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Helps put a little something in our stocking, so to speak. 
Once again, my sincere thanks to Peter Lyon for joining us and for sharing this heartwarming story of Christmas in wartime Europe and the kindness of American GIs. Visit Peter online at americansaintnick.com or follow him on Twitter at American Saint Nick. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Thanks for time traveling with us today. And whether you're Christian like the townspeople of Viltz, Jewish like Harry Stutz, or whoever you are, we wish you a week of good cheer from Peter Lyon and, of course, Dokleshin. We'll leave you with something special this week. It's a Christmas 1943 report from the BBC's legendary Godfrey Talbot. He caught up with the 8th Army in Tripoli as they chased Erwin Rommel's Africa Corps back across the Mediterranean, part of their ultimate defeat of Nazi Germany. Thank you to all who served then and all who continue to serve today, when they'd rather be home for the holidays. Here's Godfrey Talbot. Shayfire Daish, everybody. from some of the men of the 8th Army, and it was sung from the borders of Tripolitania. We are here, we just pulled off the coast road that goes along there towards Sirte and ultimately to Tripoli, and over by a recording truck there come one or two men of the 8th Army, and they're led by a corporal, I can see him there in his great coat and tin hat playing clarinet, as you've just heard, and they've just been having a bit of a sing-song. And we've recorded this bit of it. As a matter of fact, uh, they've been singing all kinds of songs. There's a bit of a difficulty in getting them to sing a carol at all, to be quite honest. And I don't want you to get the impression that the 8th Army is just having a nice picnic and is going gaily singing carols up the cut road after Rommel. They're not at all. They're far too busy fighting this war, and a grim enough business it is, and all this sand and dreary desert, and they've very little time for singing at all. We are a good way at the moment behind our forward troops. We certainly won't be going about caroling tonight. And Christmas, although it will be remembered and celebrated in the desert, won't, to be quite honest, be an affair of plum puddings and merry crackers and parties and good feasting for the men of the 8th Army. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.